Richard. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here this morning, especially those of you who are visiting with us. We want you to know that we're so glad that you have come our way and have spent these moments of giving praise to our, our Father. As we get into the message, just a little bit before, as always, I need to share with you a few things. Let me encourage you concerning our new Bible classes that began this quarter. They are incredible classes that are being taught, no doubt. Uh, they're ones that will certainly build your faith. And so please consider, if you haven't already started in these classes, please think about doing so. They'll be a blessing to your life. And finally, I want to encourage you about our upcoming lectureship. That's going to happen this uh, Thursday evening. And it's going to be, a, this, listen, this lectureship is going to be an incredible lectureship. We're going to begin with Gary Massey, who is from Chattanooga, Tennessee. He's a preacher there at that place, but he's more than just that. He's also a, a lawyer. He has his own, his own lawyer firm. And he's going to come and he's going to talk about an evidence that demands a, a verdict. And if there's anyone who understands the value of evidence, then certainly a lawyer would do so. But he's going to talk to you about just the validity of the evidence that God has provided for us for us to believe that truly God does exist. Jeff Miller's gonna follow that up by talking about the fossil record and how the fossil record really is an evidence of the existence of God. And then Friday, there are gonna be a lot of lessons. I think there's eight lessons in all, but they are gonna be lessons that will truly, truly uh, build up your faith. I generally would not encourage this, but I'm gonna encourage you as adults, if you have uh, children, that you allow them to cut school that day. I'm serious about that. You ought to let them cut school. There's not anything that they're going to learn that day in their classroom that the lessons that they're going to hear on Friday will not build them up immensely in their faith. Dave Miller is going to talk about the theological argument. That is the argument of design or intelligent design. In our world today, we have not all teachers, but some teachers who teach about the quasi-statal theory and the nebular theory and the Big Bang theory, all theories that they are giving up on, by the way. They're not sure exactly in which direction to go Dave Miller is going to share with you some things that are incredible. He has a doctor's degree. He has several master's degrees. This guy has plowed deep and is deep when it comes down to the evidence of intelligent design. That's going to be followed up with, Car with Corey Sawyer. He's going to talk about the cosmological design. It's called, listen, I'm just telling you, these are going to be incredible lessons that you don't want to miss. They're going to be that, that, that great. And so I would encourage you, parents, let your children cut school that day. Oh, Okay, maybe not cut. Let them miss school for a day and come here and listen to these lessons. They're going to be great faith builders for them. It'll be great faith builders for you as well. This is going to be a great lectureship. You don't want to miss this. So let me begin the lesson by asking you, does living life feel at times as though it's just a little bit shaky? For some, probably it's more than just a little bit shaky. For some, maybe it's just a lot uh, shaky. Depending on who you read and what evidence you're looking at concerning, say, earthquakes, well, there's a lot that is said about that. For instance, the National Earthquake Information Center, they said that we have over 50 earthquakes every day and annually about 20,000 earthquakes. I read another, uh, uh, another site that when they talked about earthquakes, they said that we have 1,400 earthquakes every day and annually over 500,000 of them and 275 of them that you can really feel. That means they have a magnitude that goes over uh, four uh, in terms of how they measure uh, earthquakes. Well, not only that, the largest earthquake in, in the world was recorded as a magnitude of 9.5 in 
in Chile on May the 22nd, 1960, 9.5 on the Richter scale. I'm talking about a huge shaking that went on there. The world's most deadly recorded earthquake occurred in 1556 in, in China, killing over 830,000 people. They lived in rock caves and the things just collapsed in on them and killed this massive number. More recent catastrophic earthquakes are ones like in 2010 in, in Haiti, there was a 7.0 magnitude earthquake killing 220,000. Then of course there was the earthquake off the shores of Japan, Japan causing a, 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 a tidal wave or a um, tsunami that was like 40 meters tall and went like three miles inland, killing 15,880 people. And of course, there was the great earthquake of Nepal. Lots of earthquakes. Did you know that you live in one of the states in our nation, the lower contiguous states that have the most earthquakes? Idaho during 2020 uh, was shook by 19 quakes over 4.5. O to 5.0, 280 quakes between 3.0 and, and 4.0 on the Richter scale, 1,700 quakes between 2.0 and 3.0, and then there were like 270 other, uh, 2,770 other earthquakes that happened that you didn't feel. Well, we don't care about the ones that you can't feel. The ones that really get us are the ones that you do feel that are really unsettling. And almost all of us can remember back last year, you know, on March the 31st, 2020, I was sitting in my living room chair, and all of a sudden I felt a rumbling and this kind of disoriented feeling that happens when earthquakes happen. And, and listen, I've lived in the Bay Area where we've had lots of earthquakes there, but this one here was a unique one because it seemed to go on and on and on. I'm not sure how long it went. I think it was probably a short time, but it seemed like a long time uh, to me. But that was a pretty good size earthquake, six point five that was what 6.2 miles below the surface as those plates begin to shift and move uh, around i'm just saying to you that when you talk about things that shake in our lives earthquakes can be one of them right but i'm really not talking about that kind of shaking am i the kind of shaking that i am talking about this morning and want to talk to you about is a shaking that has the potential of you know really shaking up our our lives and have the potential of really shaking up our faith and causing us to ask a lot of questions and maybe even causing us to, to doubt about God being sovereign over all things and that God is in control of everything that you can possibly imagine. I don't think there's probably a week that goes by in my life where I'm not made aware of someone who has gone through some kind of upheaval in their lives. I've been preaching for like 41 years. I haven't become dull or insensitive to the fact that you know, people have things that are going on that we live in a very shakable world, that we live in a very unstable world. And because of living in this fallen world that is all about us, we are all painfully aware of, of the highly breakable and highly uh, stable, unstable life that can go on ar around us. And that really shouldn't surprise us completely when you think about what the scriptures say over in James, the first chapter, verses 2 and 3. There James, the Lord's brother, says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Notice he doesn't say if you encounter various trials. He says when you encounter various trials. What he's saying is that those trials are going to be coming our way. There's going to be a shaking that's going to happen in our lives. And because we live in this fallen world, we can't get around uh, from it. And so none of us, no matter how much we have experienced or how much we have gone through in, in life, well, none of us are shockproof. None of us are 
can say that, you know, I can dodge around the things that are going to shake my life because if you live in for any time at all, you're probably already aware of that very fact that life is shakable. The life can be fairly unstable, and that's why I want to talk to you this morning from God's word about the unshakable kingdom that you are a part of. If we embrace this kingdom, then there are incredible blessings and incredible hope for enduring the shakable times in our lives. Over the last probably five months now, we've been talking about the king and his kingdom. And we've been talking about how Jesus came to establish his kingdom and that he did so on the day of Pentecost. And, and that shakable kingdom was part of what Daniel, the prophet of old, spoke about, that, that there would be a kingdom that would endure forever and that there would be no other kingdom that would ever dispose of it. And so D Daniel prophesied of the fact of this coming kingdom in Daniel, the second chapter, in verse 44. There it says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to the end all these kingdoms, but itself will endure forever. Daniel, of course, is given the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, who had a dream of this giant statue. And he's wanting to know what this giant statue is all about. And so Daniel talks to him about the statue, and he talks about the kingdoms. And he begins by saying, that head of gold, O, o, o King Nebuchadnezzar, that's you. He's talking about the Babylonian Empire. And then he'd go on to talk about the Medo-Persian Empire. And then he'd talk about the Grecian Empire. And then he would talk finally about the iron legs and the feet and the the, the kingdom of, of Rome. But he says, but in the days of those kings, there will be a kingdom that is established, that God will establish, that will endure forever, and nothing will ever destroy it. All other kingdoms will become shakable and will be moved around, but this kingdom would remain forever. Years later, John the Baptist would come along who was to pave the way for the Messiah. His message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then, of course, Jesus, he, as he comes on the scene, he begins his ministry after he goes through a period of 40 days and trial in the wilderness, and he begins his Galilean ministry with the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that becomes a major theme of a many of his lessons. In fact, you probably have noticed since we began this series on the kingdom that over and over again, you hear the word kingdom talked about in the scriptures. And not only that, maybe you're surprised at how often we sing about the kingdom in our our songs and so it becomes a major feature of his lesson all the way up until he uh, before he ascends into heaven he tells his disciples about the kingdom coming and their part in that kingdom and then of course we have spent probably at least a couple of months talking about the kingdom parables where jesus reveals the seven secrets of what the kingdom is about how this kingdom is so unshakable in so many incredible ways. That brings us to our text this morning that was read just a few moments ago by, by Richard. And in that, he talked about this kingdom. And, and of this kingdom, I want you to focus in on what he says in verses 28 and 29, but in 28 in particular. There he says that you are a part of a kingdom and that if you embrace this kingdom, you're part of the blessings of the kingdom and the abundant life that is within the kingdom itself. There he says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and with godly fear because we serve a consuming God, a God of fire, if you will. 
And so he talks about this unshakable kingdom that is there. But sometimes I think as Christians, we forget that. We forget that we live in an unshakable kingdom in which we are going to be able to survive whatever comes at us. But sometimes we're afraid when we, when we don't need to be. It's like a bus driver in a huge city. He's given a, a new route, and he's, he's moving through his new route, and his first stops are nothing, no problems happen whatsoever. People are getting off, people are getting on, and then he stops at this one place on his new route, and a big guy gets on. This guy is six foot eight inches tall. He looks like a wrestler. He's got huge arms, guns on him, you know, that hang down to almost his knees. He's a big guy, and he gets on the bus, and he walks up to the bus driver, and he says, Big John doesn't pay. And then he walks on back to the back of the bus and sits down with a smile on his face. This really bothers the, the bus driver, but he's only like five foot three inches tall. He's a thin guy. He's a really meek individual, but he doesn't like what he's been told. But this happens day in and day out. Big John doesn't pay. And it bothers him. This goes on for a long time. And so at the beginning of summer, he has decided that he has had enough so he goes and he begins taking a bodybuilding course. And he takes judo and he takes karate and he takes a self-assertive class so he is, you know, more out there and gets rid of some of his meekness. And he works on that all through the summer. And finally, by the end of the summer, he has got fit. He is in, in shape. He knows a little bit of karate and judo, probably enough to get him really hurt bad. But he knows that stuff. And now he's got confidence and he's waiting for Big John to get on the bus. And Big John walks on the bus and he says, Big John doesn't pay. And the bus driver stands up and he goes, and so why is it that Big John doesn't pay? And Big John has this kind of quizzical look on his face and he says, because Big John has a pass? <laughs> I think that's how we are sometimes in our world. We look at the world around us and we saw everything that's going on and we think to ourselves, there is no way that I can possibly stand up to this world and to the schemes of the devil. There's no way I can stand up with, to the things that shake me up in life. But I want you to know, more importantly than that, I want you to know, God wants you to know that you are part of an unshakable kingdom. If you are a Christian, if you have embraced that, then you are a part of the family of God and you serve a God who is unshakable. I love so much what uh, we shared with us early as we gathered around the Lord's table and thought about things and Adam talked about shadows and reality. Well, in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verses 18 down through 29, he talks about that which is not just shadow, but that which is shakable compared to that which is unshakable. Because there's things in our world that certainly is shakable. All other kingdoms are shakable when you think about it. Remember Daniel said that there will be a kingdom that is established that will never be shaken. Everything else will be shaken, but that won't be. Well, all you do is look at history. You can go all the way back, say, to the Egyptian empire. A world empire who was a shaker and a mover in their time went away. The Assyrians came along. The Babylonians came along. The Medes and the Persians, they came along. Then came the Greeks, and then came the Romans. Then came the Spanish, and then came the English, and then came, there have been so many world empires that have come on that you think they're going to last forever, but they're all shakable kingdoms, and eventually they all come down. The shakable world, the earthly kingdoms, even communism, the countries that are part of that kind of, of rule, 
They're ruled by a force, but remove the force, and what happens to the people? They fall apart. Even our country, which is a democratic republic, which puts a lot of stock in our Constitution, well, if we ever forget that as a nation, that the Constitution is the centerpiece of who we are as a republic or a democracy, and if we ever forget that God is at the center of that Constitution, then I'm here to tell you that even this country can be shakable if it's not already been shook. Look at our economy. Have you noticed the squabbling that's going on in Congress as they fight back and forth over this $4.5 trillion budget that they're wanting to push through or bills that they're wanting to push through this reconciliation bill and reconstruction bill and all that kind of stuff? A lot of you are saying, man, that's not going to be great for the economy. I don't know. I'm not an economist, but it makes me feel kind of shaky when I think about it or peace, wars and Rumors of war, the threat of nuclear things. Iran is back to building the, the a nuclear bomb or trying to at least get the stuff together for it. North Korea, which already has the bomb, they're already rattling their sh- sabers. China, they're becoming much more aggressive in the South China Sea. There's those kinds of things that shake up our, our peace or our country that has riots going on or had riots going on and people challenging elections and the morality of our country where we're giving up on so many things. Our churches are giving up on putting God first in all things. In fact, we have stricken, or a lot of denominations have stricken their fidelity clauses as to what it constitutes a, a marriage and what constitutes a gender and what constitutes what is moral and immoral. The Bible is being relegated as just an article where you can subjectively look at it and choose to, like a smorgasbord, I like this, I don't like that. This applies to me, that doesn't apply to me, and so it's being relegated, if not jettisoned, out of our communities, our families. You know, what constitutes a family? What really is gender, you know, identity? Is there just two or is there dozens that's the kind of stuff that's going on in the shakeable world in which you live. And now we have this pandemic that we've been fighting for almost two years now. It's shakeable stuff, right? Well, at least it shakes me up from time to time. And I have to remind myself that, listen, there is a kingdom that is unshakable, that God's kingdom is a stable force in a very unstable world in which we live. And so what the writer of Hebrews does, as, as Richard was reading to us, and so I guess I need to invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Hebrews, the 12th chapter. There, what the writer does is he, he compares a couple of mountains. And one of the mountains that he talks about it becomes a very shakable kind of my, mountain, and it represents something. And then there is another mountain that is much more stable. As you look down from verses 18 down through verse 21, there you read about Mount Sinai. What the writer is doing is he's asking us to look back to Sinai and consider what happened there as Moses leads the children of Israel out of their exodus, out of Egypt in captivity for over 400 years, and now they've entered into the wilderness, and now they've come into the, the wilderness, and they come before Sinai, the mountain of, of God. And they camp about it. And in Exodus, the 19th chapter, verses 12 through 18, God says to Moses, you need to tell the people to consecrate themselves because I want to meet them at the foot of the mountain. But you need to warn them that no beast or human being better touch this mountain because if you touch the mountain, you're going to die. And around this mountain is fire. 
Around this mountain is lightning. Around the mountain there is a shaking that is going, a quaking that is going on there. This is a fearsome place, if you will. It's a mountain that the people say, we're not going to go by. We, in fact, they said, listen, tell them to quit talking to us because we're so frightened, we're so afraid. And it even says that Moses, in verse 21, even it says Moses was trembling with fear. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 18. For you, he's talking about us, for you have not come to a mountain that may be touched into a blazing fire into darkness and gloom and whirlwind to the blast of a trumpet and the sounds of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further words should be spoken to them for they could not uh, bear the command if even a beast touches the mountain it will be stoned and so terrified was the sight that Moses said I am full of fear and trembling He's saying, listen, back in the Old Testament and in the Old Covenant, there was this mountain, Mount Sinai, and when the people came to that, they were so afraid of that mountain. But he says, but you haven't come to such a mountain as this. You've come to a different kind of, of mountain that we're talking about. So Mount Sinai is, it really represents the law or the covenant that was given on the mountain. Remember, Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days and, and 40 nights, and there he received all 613 of the laws that he was to come down and give to the people. That's why they have come to the mountain. There was a problem, though, with the covenant. And that's why he says, you haven't come to a mountain like this because this mountain represents the covenant, and you haven't come to a covenant like this because... When you talk about the law or that covenant, it was imperfect. It was a shadow. And there was not anyone who could stand up to the covenant and, and do the covenant until Jesus Christ came on the scene, was able to live the law perfectly and die as the perfect sacrifice. And so everyone was condemned because of it. 613 laws, you could do 612 of them right, 610 of them right, but you'd blow one and you blew them all. Hence, you stood under condemnation and you stood under fear. So the people, in many ways, when you talk about the law, there was a fear about that thing. It's like driving down the road in your car and having a police officer behind you. All of us, if you drive, know that feeling. You know you haven't done anything wrong. Or you think you haven't done anything wrong, and all of a sudden, you slow down like five miles below the speed limit. And you make sure that you're given a signal 500 or 300 feet before you get to your turn and you're trying to do everything right because you just know those lights are going to go on at any second and you're so glad when he turns off and goes a different direction that's how those of the law lived their lives they lived in fear of the lights always coming on behind them because they knew they were imperfect they were reminded of the, the of the imperfection of the law and how they were continuously falling short of it so what moses or what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say is that the law of Moses or the covenant was not a permanent thing. That it was shakable and eventually it would go away when Jesus would establish his kingdom, one that would last forever, that Daniel talked about. And now that the writer has said, you serve or you have come to an unshakable kingdom. Now, if you were a person of the law, if it taught anything, what it taught you was that on your very best day, 
Okay, maybe you'll have a few days that are really good, but on your very best week, maybe even your very best month, eventually you're going to fall short of the law. You're going to fall short of the covenant. Do you know that over in Israel that they still try to follow that covenant? It's an impossibility, by the way, because they, they're not able to recognize who their priests, the high priests are. They don't know who the Levites are. They don't know any of those things there, but they still follow, try to follow the law, the covenant. But you know, 85% of that country does not. They call themselves traditional Jews. They're nationalistic Jews, but they're not Jews really by faith in the living God that they truly trust and believe in. The Orthodox Jews try to do so, but the 85% don't. You know why they don't? Because they can't do it. They come to this mountain that they know it's an impossible thing to do. In fact, they don't. And even then, the Orthodox Jew is not able to do so because they don't have enough records of who their priesthood is. They don't offer their animal sacrifice. They don't do anything in terms of the sacrificial system of the, the law itself. And so when you think about it in those kinds of terms where you're being reminded all the time about your shortcomings that Adam talked about, as he talked about how those priests kept offering up these sacrifices were kept becoming reminders of the sin until the one perfect one came along who was Jesus Christ and sacrificed himself perfectly on the cross. That, that was a game changer for everyone. So it had to be so disheartening. But that was the nature of the law. The nature of the law was to condemn those who violated it. And if you don't believe me, just sometime at your leisure, go look at Galatians, the third chapter. Begin reading in verse 18 and just going down there because he asked the question, why the law then? And he'll tell you, the law was given because of sin. To prove what? That man is a sinner. That you are in need of what? That you are in need of grace, that you're in need of God's mercy, that you're in need of God's love. And it's got to be unconditionally given from him to you because you could never earn it. So spiritually speaking, such news would shake you at your core, right? But there's good news. That's the first mountain, a shakable mountain that was not permanent that's going away to an unshakable mountain that he calls Mount Zion. Look at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels or innumerable angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if he, those who did not escape when he refused those who warned them on earth, much less shall they escape who uh, turn away from him who is warned from heaven. He's saying a shaking day is coming. A judgment day is coming. But he talks about Mount Zion. You have not come to a mountain that shakes. You have come, uh, that is shakable. You have come to a mountain that does not shake, and that's Zion. So what does it represent? Well, it represents salvation. Because wrapped in this, he's talking about Jesus Christ. He, listen, he's talking about those who are without condemnation because of Christ's invitation to come into his church. He says in verse 20, you have come. What have we come to? Well, he says you've come to heaven. It's as almost as if as Christians, that's where we are. Our citizenship is there. Our names are enrolled in the book of life. That's where we belong. It's almost as he's written as, as though it's so sure that heaven is our home, that you have come to this place. You've come to myriads of angels. 
You've come to the assembly of the firstborn. He's talking about the church. You've come to God, who is, is judge of all things. And you think that would scare you absolutely to death, but not so, because in verse 24, he says, we have come to Jesus, who is a mediator. That Hebrews, the 12th chapter, in verse 2 says, is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is a mediator. A mediator is a go-between. A mediator is one who mediates on your behalf. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5 says, there is one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. Why can he mediate? Well, he can mediate, number one, because he is a man, but he has lived perfectly, so therefore he can represent you and he can represent me. But he is also God, so he can represent God. And so he is the perfect go-between. He becomes our advocate. We can always go before him, and we can go before him without any kind of, of fear or trembling because he is on our He's on our side. And that is such good news because the other mountain that's talked about is Calvary. And on Calvary, that's the second time the mountain was shaken, or third time the mountain was shaken. Because when Jesus died on the cross, there was a great earthquake that opened up the tombs. It shook the world because of this sacrifice. And so when we answer the question, what is the answer to man's dilemma? Well, the Jews had a dilemma. Their dilemma was they could not keep the law perfectly, so therefore they had all sinned and fell under condemnation. All people from that point on who were Gentiles, including you and, and me, we fall under the, the umbrella of all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When, when Paul compared the two Jew and Gentile in, in Romans, the third chapter, he says, no one has a right to stand. There is none righteous, not even one. Why? Because all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Well, what can we do now? Well, that's the answer what Calvary is about. Jesus took care of our sins by dying on the cross for our sins. In fact, Jesus, as he instituted the Lord's Supper that you took part of just a little bit ago, he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which has been poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. And so when we all partake of that fruit of the vine, we are remembering what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us that he died for our sins, that his blood cleanses us of all our sins and gives us a way back to the mountain of God because of his sacrifice. So the writer says, don't refuse him. Don't refuse the invitation because he's the only way to salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me in John the 14th chapter in verse Six there, and so his encouragement as you get down and says that we serve an unshakable kingdom. He says, Let's accept that offer of his grace, let's accept his unconditional love with thanksgiving and awe and worship and praise. Let's accept that because there's going to come another day when he says, I will not only shake the earth, I'll shake the heavens, the universe. So you can think about the shaking of this dirt ball in which we live, but there's also going to come a time when he's going to shake the universe when the stars fall from the sky. That's going to be a huge shaking that takes place there. But when one becomes a part of the unshakable kingdom, well, you become a person that can live an unshakable, stable life. You can experience the abundant life that allows us to rise above the things in life that can be so shaking to us. And we know that there's a lot of things that shake us up. Well, like what? Well, being anxious about our security. Over Matthew, the, the sixth chapter, 
there the writer talks about the thing there jesus talks about the things that are shakable he says do not be anxious about what you shall eat or what you're going to drink or with what you're going to wear the gentiles they worry about those things things that they really can't control but your god can and then he says to them seek first the kingdom of god seek this unshakable kingdom of god and his righteousness stay focused on trusting god sometimes succumbing to temptation and sinning in our lives can shake us up pretty good as as well remember in the kingdom you always have a way back that's why jesus is our advocate first john 2 or the second chapter in verse 2 says we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous one we have a go-between we have one who's on our our side and that there's no condemnation for those people. Some of you might recognize this guy behind me. That's Billy Joel. Billy Joel, in his time, wrote a lot of popular hits. I mean, he was so popular in the early days that his albums were massive hits, massive hits. But did you know Billy Joel never felt good about his music? Even though he didn't feel good about his music. He did an interview with uh, a New York... Um, magazine and they were talking about that and he says i've never felt good about my music i've never felt that it was as good as i wanted it to be and then he went on and said my standard was beethoven that's where it needed to to be so billy joel you know he he performed his 100th uh, show at madison square garden to a sold out crowd of people but he hasn't released a single album or a single song for 25 years, maybe 27 years. You know why? Because of his critics, because of condemnation. Here's what he said. He says, it's because of his critics who have often salvaged, savaged his music as sappy and shallow. Billy Joel said, because I studied music, I was suspect to critics. To them, you're supposed to be a diamond in the rough and polish yourself, and I never stacked up, and I never did that. And so he allowed his critics and the condemnation that came his way to dry up his creativity, and so he doesn't write songs anymore. He just lives off his old songs. His fear of condemnation stopped him from publishing new songs, and isn't that what happens to us sometimes? is that the condemnation of our sin affects us as people. The fear stops them from making progress and keeps them in the bondage of sin because we don't think we can ever make it or that we're ever good enough. But I want you to know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul talked about a struggle at the, at the latter part of Romans chapter 7, but he begins chapter 8 and verse 1 by saying that. I know you struggle. I know you have this, this spiritual war that's going on within you where you feel like you win and you lose, but I want you to know But because of what Christ did on the cross, there is no condemnation for those who are in a relationship with him. Of course, death can be probably the most shaking of, of all. Why is it so shaking? Because it feels so final. It feels like it's so endless that it's there's so much... Hope has been ripped out of our hearts when we lose someone that we love so much. Jesus understands that. Jesus says I, to Martha, who had lost her brother Lazarus, she's weeping, and he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Well, then I guess that's probably the multi-million dollar question, isn't it, for those of us who have lost loved ones. Do we believe it? Do we believe that our loved ones are waiting for us in heaven itself, where Jesus is going to wait to prepare a place for us, a dwelling for us? Do we believe that? If we live in the unshakable kingdom, then that might shake us for a time, which is only natural, but eventually we should get back to stability because of the hope that's placed within us because of the resurrection, and Jesus verified that. So life in the kingdom, I guess I'm saying to you, is not absent of earthquake moments that have terrifying, shaking things that happen to us. Such times can catch us off guard. And we wonder, you know, what went wrong. F.E. Meyer wrote a poem back before Cars. He said, if in an unknown country... I'm informed that I must pass through a valley where the sun is hidden or over a stony bit of road to reach my abiding. When I come to it, each moment of shadow or jolt of the carriage tells me that I am on the right road. So there will always be rocks in the road. I'm convinced of that. There are going to be bumps and bruises, the shadows and jolts in your life. But they only prove one thing, and that is you're on the right road. You know where you're going in life. Let God do for us what we cannot do alone. I love what Romans 8 chapter and verse 28 says, and then I'll wrap this thing up for you, okay? Well, almost wrapped up. But I just want you to hear this because it's, 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 this is the unshakable thing I'm talking about. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who called according to his purpose. The all things he's not talking about are not the rocky moments. The all things are not the good things. The good thing is what the rocky moments bring us to. And that which it brings us to is verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's where we're going. That's why this life is taking us through, through all the bumps and all the curves and all the shadows and all the jolts that happen to us in life. We're being moved to something of perfection where we are being made into the image of God so that when we get to heaven, we'll fit perfectly in there. It'll be the place for us. And it's going to be unshakable. So what does the unshakable kingdom look like? Well, what then should we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one that condemns Christ Jesus? Is he who died? Yes, rather who was raised from the right hand, raised at the right, raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of God in Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword but in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us for I am convinced that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any of the created things shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We serve an unshakable God, an unshakable Savior, and you are a part of an unshakable kingdom. Church, stay focused. Stay focused on him who's at the right hand of God. You'll make it. I know sometimes it feels shaky right now. For some of you, shaking more than others. I know that. But you can make it. You serve and live in an unshakable kingdom. Your response is yours. Whatever you need to do, once you do so at this time, together we stand and sing this song.